did make use of his conceptual notion of univocity. Many others ignored it and returned to the Aristotelian definition. In what follows, also, I will examine the reasons that led Scotus to abandon the Aristotelian definition and survey the early Scotus rejection of Scotus's conceptual definition. I limit my investigation for the present only to the early Scotus authors, since many of these uh, people, primarily from the 1320s, would have known Scotus personally and heard him lecture. Um, and importantly, given the chaotic nature of Scotus's writings at the time of his death, um, some of these early Scotus report their usage of autograph manuscripts of Scotus, and so they have a certain pride of place in the history of Scotism, according to me. Okay, so part one, Dun Scotus and Univocity. So first we look at Dun Scotus's views on Univocity. As is well known, Scotus's uh, position shifted on Univocity being shifted significantly during his career. Initially, he denied the Univocity being, and later he affirmed it. In his early commentaries on Porphyry's Ichigoge and Aristotle's logical works, Scotus rejects Univocity being, um, and in his questions on the Deanima, commentaries on the sentences, he affirms it. In his questions on the metaphysics of Aristotle, he originally denied Univocity, uh, but later revised the question on Univocity and then defended, defended Univocity against his own previous objections. Now, Aristotle in the categories had defined univocity as follows, and I'm quoting here from the Apostle translation since it brings out um, something I'm trying to emphasize here. Things are named univocally if both the name applied to them is common and the expression of the substance corresponding to that name is the same for each of the things, as in the case of animal when applied to a man and to an ox. For man and an ox may be called by the common name animal and the expression of the substance corresponding to that name is the same for both. For if one were to state for each one of them what it is to be an animal, he would give them the same definition, end quote. Uh, in order to have univocals then, or to have things that are univocal, there must be a sameness of name definition. But the presence of things in the definition of Aristotle should give us pause, though not literally in the Greek or Latin it is implied. Given that the result is the application of univocals to things, such as that Aristotle says things are named univocally, a host of difficulties arises for anyone wishing to posit that being is univocally common to God and creatures. Thus, for example, if being were so common, they would, God and creatures would share in the same nature, being in this, according to one of Scotus's principles, expressed in his question of the categories, uh, which is that to every univocal, there is a corresponding unity in things. Uh, this would result in unity of things outside the soul, with the result that God cannot be simple or transcendent, and the being would be a genus. Here, let the example of divine, divine, divine simplicity suffice. If God and creatures shared in the sum reality outside the soul, there would be an aspect in God that was common to God and creatures, and another aspect that God did not share. This, of course, would leave us with two parts to God, contrary to divine simplicity. Scotus examines the Aristotelian definition of equivocity in question five of his commentary in the categories, and univocity in question six. Though he accepts Aristotle's definitions as fitting, he draws a distinction between the concept or notion and the thing to which it is applied. So the concept or intention is called the equivocating, so equivocans, equivocantia in Latin, or univocating, univocans, univocantia. And the subject is the equivocate, equivocata, or univocate, the univocata. So regarding univos, the Aristotelian definition can be applied to both the univocating notion and the univocates. Um, relevant to my pre present purpose is a comment Scotus makes at the end of his discussion. Um, this is on the handout. Um, here I give the translation, but it's probably the first item on the handout. Mm -hmm. 
So Aristotle seems rather to have meant his definition to be understood of univocates, for he, Aristotle says, as of animal, man, and cow, for both animals are named by common name, which is manifestly said of the univocates. And he adds, of the same account, and if anyone assigns the account of each, what they are, and that they are animals, he will assign the same account of each, which similarly is manifestly referred to the univocates, so univocata. Uh, this is significant because if one were to ask whether being is univocal to God and creatures, God and creatures would be the univocates from the very usage of the Aristotelian definition of univocity, and it would be the case that being was something common outside the soul to God and creatures, uh, which is something that Scotus was at great pains to deny once he'd come to adopt the univocity being. It's perhaps worth repeating that in his early questions on the categories, his position is that being is logically or conceptually equivocal in one set of the categories, and that outside the soul, which is what occupies the metaphysician or real metaphysician, being is analogical. Scotus first defended the university being in his commentaries and the sentences, which he began to write in the 1290s. Scotus has three commentaries called the modern, modern literature, the lectura, ordinatio, and reputatio. Now, it is only in the ornatio, long regarded as Scotus's masterwork on a par with the Summa of Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, that Scotus seems to redefine the notion of univocity. In a well-known and much commented upon passage, he says that there are two notions, um, which in what follows I'll call two conditions, two conditions that are necessary for univocal concepts. Indeed, what he says is worth quoting in full, and it is on the handout. So this is the second text on the handout under Scotus. Unless there be contention over the name univocity, I call a concept univocal, which is so one that its unity suffices for contradiction, affirming, denying it of the same. Suffices also for the syllogistic middle term so that the extremes united in the middle can be concluded to be united to each other without a fallacy of equivocation. Now it's clear from the first sentence that Scotus is offering a definition here, not an argument. Indeed, this text about the two conditions serves as a prefatory remark to the arguments for the university being. Um, there's been a certain amount of debate about these two conditions, which um, I've summarized in a, in a recent article. Um, so there's discussion whether these conditions are necessary and sufficient, or they're a functional definition, or they require further um, qualification from other passages of the Ornatio, whereas Scotus talks about university requiring the sameness of ratio. Uh, my, my view on this in summary is that the um, conditions are here acting as axioms with respect to the arguments for university. So as with the case of um, the axiom of Boethius, the conditions support the syllogisms in favor of univocity uh, without um, directly being included in the arguments. These axioms are per se nota in the second sense of a Boethian axiom according to which they're evident uh, to someone who is educated. What is clear about these two conditions is they pertain to concepts and thus they avoid the ambiguity in the, the original definition that Scotus had worried about in his questions on the categories. And there can be no question, given the definition he supplies in Renatio, of there being a common univocal reality outside the soul that befalls both God and creatures. The question we have to ask his followers, then, is how they can revert to the Aristotelian definition without falling into this ambiguity that Scotus sought to avoid. Or in other words, how can the Aristotelian definition be employed in defense of the university being without positing a real university, a real commonality outside the soul between God and creatures? So part two, rejection of Scotus's definition. I turn now to consideration of Scotus's views uh, according to the early Scotists. Uh, many scholars have noted the independence from the master that his followers practiced, often following what they believed to be his principles rather than his stated conclusions on various topics. Um, a watershed moment in the development of the Scotists 
uh, from being simply Franciscan thinkers influenced by the thought of Scotus to a distinct group or sect, the Scola Scotica, as Petrus Tome calls it, um, was the critique of Peter Auriel. Writing from 1316 onwards, Auriel attacked many aspects of Scotus's thought, including the formal distinction and univocity being. Moreover, Auriel had extensive knowledge of the works of Scotus and cited him precisely. This critique from Auriel uh, provoked a response from numerous Franciscans, certainly all the ones that I'll discuss today. The aspect of Ariel's thought relevant to our present purpose is this critique of Scotus's first argument for the university being, usually referred to as the argument from the certain and doubtful concept. Um, the 14th century is also called the Achilles argument to indicate the strength uh, uh, of the argument itself, presumably not that there was a fatal flaw. This argument, it should be called, is what immediately follows Scotus's two conditions for univocal concepts in the text of the Ornatio. Ariel makes no mention of the two conditions, he lodges an objection that did not originate with him since it's found in some earlier thinkers. Uh, the objection is that Scotus's ar uh, argument here is valid, but the conclusion is not what Scotus thought it was. For Ariel, the conclusion proves only that the concept of being is other than the concepts of substance and accident, that there is a univocity of underlying ratio, which for Ariel is impossible since the ratio entis is a collection of all rationes. As is formulated by the Thomas, Thomas Anglicus in his Liber Popernitorius against on Scotus and later by Cajetan, Scotus's argument proves only that the concept of being is other than the concepts of substance and accidents, not that it is univocally common to them. Thomas Anglicus and um, Cajetan are then happy to conclude that the concept of being is in the end analogical. This response to Scotus's argument from the certain and doubtful concept bespeaks a problem regarding these two conditions for univocal concepts. The axiomatic status goes unrecognized, and Scotus is criticized for failing to prove univocity, uh, for he failed to build the, the notion of univocity into the, argument, into the arguments for the univocity being. Um, though Auriel ignores the two conditions, Thomas, Anglican, Thomas Anglicus does comment on them. He says that they can be tolerated, even though they are not what the philosophers commonly mean by the term uh, univocity. He accuses Scotus of arguing beyond his own intended meaning, however, um, claiming that Scotus held the being as amnino univocum elsewhere in Scotus's writings, um, thus requiring uh, Thomas Anglicus to reply to Scotus's arguments. Okay, so I turn now to the early Scotus themselves and first to Francis Moronis. Uh, it's unknown whether he knew Scotus directly or not. His literary activity begins around 1320 and he died around 1328. He's probably the most prolific Scotus author of the Middle Ages. He discusses university in numerous works. So what I have to say here is tentative, um, but as far as I can determine, he does not report Scotus's two conditions for univocal concepts. He is aware of the common critique of Scotus's first argument for univocity, uh, for he reports it in what I think is his late work, the Questio de Univocazione Entis. Um, moreover, in two of his commentaries on the sentences, uh, the early one called Aboriente and the late Conflatus, Francis attempts to head off the common critique by building univocity into um, the argument itself. So this is sort of around the first text under Moronis and Aboriente. In Aboriente, Francis extracts the major premise of Scotus's argument and elevates it to the status of a regula, uh, which is another word for the axiom. So he formulates the, the axiom as, whenever some intellect is certain about one concept and doubtful about two, the certain concept is univocal to the two doubtful ones, uh, which is a stronger claim than Scotus's original premise. It is then a simple manner to plug it into the argument. With the notion of univocity contained in the major premise rather than as a supporting axiom, Francis can avoid the common critique of Scotus's um, first argument for univocity. Francis preserved the axiomatic status uh, by elevating the major premise of Scotus's original argument to a regula. 
but it leaves open the question of what is meant by univocity, uh, which is a notion that Francis simply assumes. This question is still open in what is um, probably a late work of Francis, the Conflatus. Here Francis is defending the claim that being has one concept that's univocal to God and a creature. Francis begins with the major premise of Scotus' argument from the certain and doubtful concept without univocity in the major premise and without mentioning the two conditions. He describes the premise from Scotus as a regular, as he had in the Avoriente text, um, where it, uh, it is, you know, it's equivalent to an axiom. Francis provides four declarations of Scotus' regular, each a separate syllogism, and each one of these slips the notion of univocity into its conclusion. We can consider the third one of these as representative where Francis writes, quote, every intellect which has one certain concept compatible with two conceives it as communicable to them, but every such concept is univocal, therefore, et cetera, end quote. Uh, Francis does not follow up this argument with an explanation of communicability as we might expect. Rather, he apparently thinks it's obvious that um, communicability can only be equivocal or univocal, not analogical. In some passages of his works, at least he does argue that the basic opposition between equivocity and univocity, there's no medium, and analogy is simply a subdivision of equivocity. Now, following these declarations, Francis provides the argument from the certain doubtful concept in full. So as can be seen on the handout, uh, the major premise now contains the notion of univocity, and, this, and the conclusion is simply that the concept of being is univocal to God and creatures. And this is on the second page under the conflatus under the Moronis column. As Francis explained earlier, the meaning of the word concept here is quidditative, that there's a quiddity of being contained in the concept which the act of the intellect is directed at or at which it terminates. From the Aboriente and conflatus, Francis' position is clear. Faced with a common objection to Scotus's first university being, namely that Scotus is only warranted to conclude that being has a distinct concept, which can then be analogical, Francis redistributes the notion of univocity from the axiomatic status that it had as the definition, supporting the arguments in Scotus's ordinatio, into the major premise of the argument itself. This has the advantage of staving off the analogy of being, but it comes at a high cost for no longer have a definition of univocity apart from its application in the argument. And as we saw, Scotus himself thought that the Aristotelian definition could be about the univocata as well as the, the univoca. Um, though for reasons of space, I won't discuss it here. Um, Francis's abandonment of Scotus's definition resulted in his restricting the reality of the concept of being um, for, according to Francis, it's only predicated denominatively, not quiditatively. Um, we'll hear more, but we will hear more about that tomorrow in the Jacopo's talk. Okay, I turn now to Petrus Tome. Uh, Petrus Tome wrote in the same decade of 1320s. Um, yeah, so I, he also has a repertatio, which has the kind of the single longest question about analogy and divorce from the Middle Ages. Um, I'm not gonna talk about that today though, um, because I'm not certain that it actually was by Petrus Tome, and I'm not certain that it's a repertatio. In any case, in, the, in this early text, if it's by Petrus Toma, he makes the same move as Francis Morona's um, regarding elevating the major premise of Scotus's argument. So today I'll focus on the Dante. Peter devotes the fifth question of the Dante to an analysis of Scotus's Achilles argument from the certain and doubtful concept. This is an impressive record of the early stage of the debate for Peter repeats 11 responses to the argument, uh, the authors of several which he names. So we meet Peter Ariel, Robert Cowton, Richard Conington, Alexander of Alessandria, uh, Franciscans and Gerardo Bologna for the seculars. 
On the basis of this, this criticism, which includes two versions of the common 14th century objection, Peter develops a formulation of the argument that he claims is necessarily true. Uh, so this is on the handout. Yes, this is the first Peter Tomei text on the handout. Uh, so in translation, it's, quote, it is impossible for one and the same concept to be doubtful and certain to the same intellect at the same time, but with the certitude of the concept of being stands doubt about a very special being. Therefore, the concept of being is necessarily other than the concept of every uh, special being. So here the technical term or concept of a special being, uh, this is referred to what Scotus calls the proper concepts, uh, the concept proper to God or of a creature. Also note that in, given the critique of Peter Ariel and these, these others, that Peter Tomei is not claiming that this argument yields univocity being. Um, rather, he's conceding to the critics that the argument only proves the concept of being is other than the concept of finite being and infinite being. Peter's question contains no discussion of the two conditions for univocal concepts or any other definition of univocity. Uh, for such a definition, we have to look for, to question seven of the Dante. Here, Peter notes that, um, notes that uses the same distinction that Scotus had between the, um, for the various intentions, such as equivocity or univocity, um, that there's a, two, a twofold way of using them. So we do the concept itself or the things that fall under them, which is to say the univoca univocons or univoca univocata. Um, despite Peter's use of this distinction, however, I find no evidence that he's using Scotus's commentary in the categories. Now, Peter simply adopts the Ristilian definition as his own. He quotes the definition out of Boethus's commentary in the categories, quote, univocals are and are said, whose name is common, and according to the name, the account of the substance is the same. Peter notes that Boethius uses the phrase are and are said uh, in the Latin sunt et decuntur, because things can be both univocal in reality, essay, and speech, dici. Thus, even though Peter does not seem to have been aware of Scotus's commentary in the categories, he arrives via Boethius at the same conclusions that the early Scotus did, that the written definition of univocity can be applied to things in actual existence as well as concepts. Peter does not note that God and creatures cannot be univocal according to essay. When Peter turns to prove the univocity being in question 10 of the Dante, he develops his own unique argument. And this is the second Peter Tomei quote on the handout. The argument is this, quote, every positive quidditative concept that's included quidditatively in many other concepts, none of which it contains, is won by the unity of univocity. But the concept of being is of this kind, therefore, etc." end quote. Peter thinks the major premise is true inductively, that these are simply the conditions of any univocal concept. As we saw already in Scotus's argument, uh, Scotus had attempted to draw the conclusion that the concept of being is both distinct from and included in the concepts proper to God and creatures. Peter Tomei, however, will only allow one of these notions into the argument, in this case, the notion of inclusion. To be included in other concepts quidditatively means that there's a ratio or concept of being that's found in every concept that includes it, and the quidditative ratio is exactly the same wherever it's included. Peter adds a comment following his primary argument for univocity regarding the argument of Scotus he had discussed in question five, referring to the famous argument, which was a reference to Scotus about the certain and doubtful concept. He says that it proves sufficiently that being has its own proper and distinct concept uh, or concept distinct from the special concepts, but it does not prove univocity unless um, Peter's own argument with the inclusion of concepts is added to it. Yes, this is, that's the last, the last quote from Peter Tomei on the handout. 
In brief, then, Peter's view is that rather than inferring univocity and inclusion from the proof for a distinct concept, the proof for the distinct concept itself requires a further argument demonstrated that the concept is quantitatively included in other concepts. Peter also gives an argument simply from the Racine definition of univocity. The argument is that every concept, predicate of many, according to the same name and same ratio of the name, is one by unity of univocity. And this is true of the concept of being. Uh, the major premise Peter takes from his description of univocals in question seven of the Dante that I've, we've already discussed, the minor that the Aristotelian definition of univocity can be applied to the concept of being, Peter takes to be true from various claims he defended in previous questions of the Dante. Um, so these, these claims are that the term ends does not only predicate a name, that there's a quantitative concept of being, there's a concept proper to being, and there's only one ratio for being. Uh, most of this is anti-aureal. Um, Conclusions derived from debate with Ariel. So Peter's proof for univocity of being using the Aristotelian definition relies upon a chain of conclusions he'd already established. It's also clear from the argument when he employs Aristotelian definition that, he's, that Peter's only talking about concepts, not things in reality. Um, so he's at least accounting for the, the, the worry that um, the ambiguity of the worried Scotus. Uh, but nevertheless, Peter devoted the immediately following question of the answer to the problem of the reality of the concept of being, uh, where, he had, where he developed a view on there's a distinction between uh, objective and subjective reality. So he was not entirely happy with his uh, use of the Aristotelian definition, I think, or at least the, he was still worried about the concept of the reality. So the third scotus is Nicholas Benetis. Uh, so Nicholas Benetis is a master of theology by the end of 1333 and dies around 1343. The work I'll discuss today is his Metaphysics, which survives in two printed editions and some 30 manuscripts. This work is written in the form of a treatise rather than a quaestio, and it's basically the first metaphysics to be written independently of the structure of Aristotle's metaphysics, um, an honor previously granted to Francisco Suarez's Disputationis Metaphysicae. The dating of Benedis's metaphysics is difficult to determine that he mentions no names of contemporaries. However, a number of manuscripts provide marginal commentary and identify some of the opinions Benetis examines as those of Francis of Marcia and William of Ockham. Should this prove accurate, Benetis's metaphysics would date to around 1325, more or less the same period as the Dante of Petrus Tome. The relevant section of Benetis's metaphysics is book one, which is subdivided into a prologue and five investigations. The prologue is the only section of the text that con contains anything comparable to Scotus's two conditions for univocal concepts. Noting that metaphysics is about the most common term that is, that is um, common to the first transcendent quiddity in the 10 categories, Benetis states that the first term of every science is simple and is either equivocal, analogical, or univocal. Science has one subject and one medium and demonstrates one attribute of the subject. But both equivocity and analogy fail to satisfy this requirement of a science, uh, which is reminiscent of Scotus because um, these analogy and equivocity do not preserve the unity of the medium, that is the middle term of the science. So in a way, we have here the second of Scotus's two conditions of the univocal concept. Uh, according to Benetis, the difference between equivocal terms and analogical terms is that that which is signified by analogical terms are referred to one central analogate uh, to which the analogous nature belongs formally, whereas it is not in the other non-primary analogates um, formally, but only by reference. Now, having dispatched analogous and equivocal terms from any role in the science of metaphysics, Benetis turns to the definition of univocity in the first investigation. The definition he adopts is the Aristotelian one, 
And like Petrus Tome, he comments on every word in the definition from Aristotle's categories, breaking it down to five parts. Um, furthermore, he describes the definition of Aristotle as the one universally conceded by the philosophers. He makes no mention of Scotus. The first part of the definition, according to Menetus, is of which the name is common, um, which Menetus notes obviously indicates the community of a name. And this is also apparent from the word univocum, which is a single vox or single vocatio by means of a single name. The second part is, quote, and according to the name, end quote, which according to Benetis indicates that there's a single definitional ratio corresponding to the name. If there were not, the name would be equivocal. The third part is, the quote, the ratio of which the name is common. Now, as well known to medieval thinkers, the term ratio requires explanation. For Benetis, the term ratio in this definition means equity of a thing, not something subjectively intellecting and uh, existing in intellect, such as a concept. He supports this with consideration that ratio, like intensio and conceptus, can indicate either the act of understanding or the object of thought. That the ratio in Aristotle's definition refers to the object, Benetius thinks is clear from a number of properties that befall an object and not the act, such as that it can be simplicity or simplex, contractible, perfectible, uh, and these cannot befall an act, according to Benetius. Here, Benetius calls upon Scotus, specifically the major premise of the argument from the certain and doubtful concept. He describes his premise as a, quote, rule commonly conceded, end quote, and gives Scotus his version of it, that is, the version that does not contain univocity. So he says, every intellect certain about one and doubtful about two has another concept about which it is certain from those about which it is doubtful. This description of the major premise from Scotus as a rule indicates that Benetus also considers it as an axiom, um, as did uh, Francis Morona's even though uh, Benetis does not follow Francis, including univocity in the proposition. Benetis employs this rule of Scotus to show that ratio in, this, in the Aristotelian definition of univocity refers to an object that is the quiddity of a thing and an act. The intellect is not certain about one act and doubtful about two, but is certain about one object or one formal objective ratio or one quiddity, which is in one, and doubtful whether two other objects and quiddities inhere in the same quiddity. Uh, in Benet's example, if one sees a leopard from afar, one can be certain that it is an animal, but doubtful whether it is a dog or a cat. The fourth section of the definition uh, of Benet's sort of quasi-commentary on the definition is the ratio of substance, which Benetis explains as referring not to the category of the same name, but rather just to the kind of notion of a definitional quiddity that's found in each category. And within each one of these categories, there's also univocity. The fifth and final part of the definition is, quote, este autumn, which Benetis interprets as meaning that the univocal is the same and undivided in all of its univocates. The sameness can be either in concepts or in things. So Benetis arrives at the same difficulty that had plagued Scotus regarding the, def the Aristotelian definition. According to Benetis, things that are in a genus have a similarity to other things in the same genus, which the intellect represents in an equal way, and thus everything within a genus is univocal on the conceptual level, according to this Aristotelian definition of univocity. Uh, the term and the nature of the univocal are found in all other concepts. Since these concepts are based on things outside the soul, they're real concepts, and so they have an accompanying real unity. Consequently, the pure conceptual univocity ultimately adopted by Scotus, Benetis deems insufficient to account for the kind of univocity specified um, by the Aristotelian definition. Rather, there needs to be a real unity and a real identity as well. 
Now, one reason the Benetus thinks identity of concept or rot so it does not suffice is that if it did, one could use a single univocal term for everything positive that's in opposition to nothing, uh, which is a, something that Benetus uh, rejects in other passages. Regarding the real unity, Benetus notes it be considered in two ways. One in which according to every univocal term, there's a real corresponding unity in things outside the soul, a unity which is less than numerical, but which is not the same in each of the univocates. Though this at first sounds like Scotus's theory of individuation, um, there's marginalia in several manuscripts attributing this theory to Peter Ariel. The second meaning of real unity is that there's equity with a real unity found in all of the univocata. For reasons of space, I'll pass over Benetius' analysis of the Ariel position. Uh, his own view is the second. So the, according to Benetius, there's a univocal quiddity found in all univocates, and where it's contained whole and entire uh, yeah, in each, each univocate. Benetius concludes this investigation of the metaphysics with a summary of Aristotle's definition, which he's modified slightly. This final definition is that whose name is common, and according to the name, the account of substance is the same, and one, ex into a rei, entirely undivided in the univocata. The phrase ex into a rei, normally for a scotus, indicates that something is the case apart from the activity of intellect thinking it. So here, Benetus' definition of univocity allows for a real univocity, precisely what scotus had rejected in his questionis on the categories and attempted to avoid in his ordinatio. As I alluded to already, Benetus distinguishes between ends as said of everything positive outside of nothing and ends as a quiddity distinct from other quiddities. In his definition of univocity, he employed the second sense of ends. Um, the same is true when he moves to discuss univocity being in book one of the metaphysics. Thus he argues that being is univocal in the sense that there is one countable quiddity distinct from all other quiddities and univocal to them. His investigation at this point covers three regions of being, first the categories, second real being and being of reason, and third the first intelligence, to say God, in relation to the other intelligences and all other beings. Now as it turns out, the quiddity of being is univocal and identical in all these, insta all these instances and to all univocates. According to Benetis, the same group of arguments can be applied in all three planes of univocity. One of these arguments is based on the Aristotelian definition. Without much explanation, Benetis claims that the quiddity of being can be said of the 10 categories according to the same name in ratio, fulfilling the definition of univocity he had defended previously. Benetis also provides a version of the Achilles argument, um, which is the most original version of the argument formulated by the group of thinkers present under consideration. And that is on the handout for Benetis. Yes, so this is the Benetis text. Benetis advances this argument only in the context of defending Novoster of the categories, though again, he thinks you can use the same basic argument form in all three um, all th other regions of being. So according to Benetis, the intellect can be certain about a positive being that it's categorical, but doubtful about which category it falls into. This means that the quiddity of being is distinct from the quiddities of the categories. The quiddity of being is also common and the same as the, uh, the quiddities of the categories, because if one were to consider the quiddity of a category distinctly, one finds the same quiddity of being in the quiddity of a category. Qua quiddity, the quiddity of being is one undivided in itself, whether it's considered as part of the quiddity of a category or not, and so it's common and univocal to all the categories. I'll not remark upon Benetis' discussion of the other two regions of being, save for the second, um, namely real being and being of reason. 
Uh, this is the area in which the lion's share of research on Bonetus has been devoted, since this has been seen as the precursor of the, super, the notion of super transcendental. Um, so Bonetus thinks that being is inevitable to being inside the to yeah, being inside the soul and being outside the soul, which Scotus is also opposed to. Uh, but it should be clear now that Benetis' adoption of univocity between equity in, the, uh, in the equity in the soul qua being thought about and equity outside the soul is a consequence of the abandonment of Scotus' definition of univocity in favor of the Aristilian notion. Benetis has embraced the ambiguity between the univoca and univocata, the word Scotus, simply arguing that univocity obtains for both inside the soul, outside the soul, and between them both. In every case, it's the same undivided quiddity of being. The final Scotus I'll treat today is Antonius Andreae. Most scholars believe Antonius to have studied with uh, Scotus at Paris, or at least knew him personally. Um, I find this highly unlikely. Uh, Antonius's work contained references to Ariel, which has led uh, Merrick Gensler, presupposing the traditional biography of Antonius, to posit Ariel references that stem from later redaction. Um, but I see no reason to um, posit redactional complexities for the sake of saving the traditional biography. So I think Antonius's works must be later than 1316 or so. Furthermore, on the present issue, Antonius is, is close to Francis, so I would put Antonius's works after Francis. Indeed, I think Antonius is influenced by Francis. Moreover, Antonius's comments regarding his fidelity to Scotus, on which the traditional biography is founded, are incorrect, in that Antonius thought Scotus's questions on the categories derived from lectures Scotus gave at Paris. And um, William Courtney has argued that the Antonius on the adhesion list of 1302 was included in a group of Italian Franciscans. And given that this list is organized regionally, it's unlikely that it refers to our Antonius. So I place Antonius's literary activities at least in the, um, or largely in the 1320s. Like Scotus, Antonius and Dre wrote a commentary on the categories of Aristotle. And in fact, the relevant section about Univocity is largely a paraphrase of Scotus's commentary. Thus, it's not surprising to find Antonius also affirming Aristotle's definition of univocity as sufficient, uh, or as a sufficient definition of univocals. Antonius also sees that the definition can be applied to both univocals and univocates, and that this is also how Aristotle understood the definition. And of course, he's just paraphrasing Scotus in a way. Antonius isn't thinking any of this. Uh, turning to his questions on the metaphysics, Antonius, to my knowledge, makes no mention of Scotus's definition of univocity. But in his, question on uh, in his own question of univocity, Antonius distinguishes between three different kinds of univocity, physical, logical, and metaphysical. Physical univocity is found outside the soul in the species, which has less than numerical unity. Logical univocity is in the soul and it are, pertains to the logical second intentions that the intellect can supply to first intentions. Metaphysical univocity is the unity of some first intention abstractable by the intellect from many ex into rei, with every second intention uh, circumscribed. These three kinds of univocity have been discussed in literature previously. So Giorgio Pini ascribed the threefold division of univocity and Antonius um, to the latter's ignorance of the Axonian context in which Scotus's views on, <coughs> views on univocity developed. Um, namely this common opinion that being was equivocal for the logician but analogical for the metaphysician who deals with real things outside the soul. Uh, and though there is merit to Pini's view here, I think the simpler explanation is that Antonius, since Antonius abandoned Scotus's definition of univocity in the Ordinatio, he had to account for the twofold possibility of Aristotle's definition as applicable to both univoca and univocata, while at the same time maintaining that being is somehow a real concept. 
Now, when Antonius turns from defining the three kinds of univocity, he defends three conclusions about their applicability to being. The first conclusion is that being in common is not univocal to all beings by physical univocity. The reason for this is there's not one nature outside the soul that corresponds to the concept of being. The second conclusion is that being in common is univocal to all beings by logical univocity. The second intention here is that a universality, not that of a genus or species. Universality can attach to the ratio entis, um, whereas genus, the second intention of genus and species cannot. The third conclusion is that being in common is univocal to all beings by metaphysical univocity. Antonius specifies that it means that there is some one real concept of being that can be abstracted from every being that participates quotatively in being. It is this concept of being that's predicable of every being really uh, realitarian and univocally. Now it is in defense of this third conclusion that we find a reference to the Aristotelian definition of univocity as well as Antonius and Dre's version of the argument from the certain and doubtful concept. Regarding the Aristotelian definition, Antonius uses it in a syllogism with the definition as a major premise. Uh, he's clear that the sort of univocity he has in mind here is conceptual. Uh, yeah, so I have the, his third conclusion on the, on the handout, and then kind of the second paragraph is, the, is his, his argument. The minor premise in which he uh, applies the definition of the ratio entis is in advance on the version of Bonatus, since Antonius gives us a reason um, to think the why the definition applies, namely that being is predicated in quid and is included quotatively in the beings that are inferior in the, categor in the categorical line. Antonius Andre follows Francis Moronis in his formulation of the argument from the certain and doubtful concept. That is, Antonius attempts to work univocity into the major premise. But it's not simply the assertion that a certain concept is univocal uh, to doubtful concepts, which is what we have in Moronis. Brother Antonius adds the notion of inclusion. If one is certain about one concept and doubtful about two, in which the certain concept is quidditative included, then the certain and doubtful concepts are univocal. Antonius supports this premise by repeating Scotus's comment that if one denies the major premise, one would lose certitude of every concept, to which Antonius simply adds that if the concepts are quidditatively included in each other, they are univocal. And we've already seen this was also part of the conclusion of Scotus' original argument. Antonius then is not only attempting to slip univocity into the major premise, um, but also the notion of inclusion, or he's using inclusion to explain the um, univocity. Finally, regarding the reality of the concept of being, Antonius is prepared to accept some commonality in being outside the soul, unlike Petrus Tomei and Francis Moronis. For Antonius, God and creatures are more similar to each other than either is to nothingness, Hence, there is some common reality of being. Moreover, the intellect would be foreign fictitious concepts if there, is nothing, if there is nothing common to God and creatures outside the soul, which the intellect can abstract from. Um, the connection of this claim and the re-adoption of the definition of univocity is less clear than it is in Benetis, um, but at the very least, the adoption of the definition has opened up the logical space for a real univocity in the thought of Antonis Andreae. Okay, so I come down to the conclusion. So I conclude with, here with a summary reconstruction. First, Scotus commented on the categories early in his career, at which time he was opposed to univocity being. Scotus interpreted Aristotle's definition of univocity to be applicable to both univocal concepts and things outside the soul. But to posit univocity outside the soul would compromise divine transcendence, pausing extramental agreement between God and creatures. Later, Scotus changed his mind in defending univocity being. To avoid what we might call a real univocity, Scotus deployed what I've called the two conditions of univocal concepts. 
Scotus' most famous argument, called the Achilles argument, is the argument from the certain and doubtful concept. Even in Scotus' own lifetime, a common counter to this argument was developed by the partisans of analogy, according to which the argument only proves that the concept of being is a distinct concept. This leaves room for a final inference that the concept of being is actually analogical. The problem for these critics was that the notion of univocity itself was not contained in the premises of the argument. The early Scotus tried to meet this criticism in a variety of ways. Francis Moronis and Antonius Andre accepted the critique and worked the notion of univocity into the major premise of the Achilles argument. Antonius and Antonius also adding the notion of quantitative inclusion. Petrostomi was more accepting of the critique and re reformulated the Achilles argument to prove only that being has a distinct concept. To yield a conclusion of univocity, Peter argued we have to add a further argument containing the Ristilian definition of univocity. Now, all these early Scotus thinkers I've surveyed today abandoned or at least made no mention of Scotus' own two conditions for univocal concepts. All of them reverted to the Ristilian definition. But this leaves them exposed to the twofold application of the Ristilian definition to concepts and to things. The attempt to explain how their views amount to positing um, really novosity counts, in my view, for the diversity of Scotus' views on the, on the concept of the reality, of the con or the problem of the reality, of the concept of being. It's only Nicholas Benedis and perhaps less explicitly Antonius Andrea who's willing to accept the full consequences of the Ristilian definition and posit a single quiddity for being that's found one and divided in every instance, whether the category is being a reason or God. Um, and to posit this as univocal. The other scotists fall back upon various distinctions and modes of univocity or existence. Uh, now, so I'll, my final remark then is on what kind of consequences this might have for the debate with those outside of um, scotist research. Well, first, given that scotists and Aquinas are operating with different definitions of univocity, a more fruitful conversation might be had if the conversation were to switch from scotists to those of his followers. As I noted above, Thomas Anglicus commented that Scotus's definition was not the common one employed by the philosophers and claimed Scotus's arguments moved beyond it onto the level of the real. A turn to the early Scotus would have the advantage of basing the discussion on the shared notion of univocity. Um, what I've been referring to as ambiguity or problem in the Ristillian definition, namely that it can be applied to things as well as concepts, could turn into an advantage and that would require a clear-cut distinction between conceptual and real univocity. Um, this would leave Thomas with two um, dialogue partners or there might be two sort of diametrically opposed positions, namely Petrus Tome, who concedes original critique of the Achilles argument and reformulates it, and Nicholas Benetis, who accepts the consequences of real univocity. Now, given that Peter Tome also defends the analogy of being, and indeed he developed one of the most complex theories of analogy that survives in the Middle Ages, whereas Nicholas Benetis rejects analogy, the um, choice for Thomas would then be clear. So thank you for your attention. <laughs>